Okay. Well, today we are uh, in Romans chapter 14. And uh, last week, we looked at the first four verses of chapter 14. And uh, today we'll pick it up in verse 5, hopefully get down through about verse 12. And he's still dealing with the same issues that we uh, were talking about last week, the question of the the weak and the strong, etc. So let's read beginning in verse 1. Read down through verse 12 and then uh, and then do our review. Paul says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats uh, not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die... We die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow. To me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay? Uh, Well, looking at those first four verses, uh, verses 1 through 4 there, chapter 14, what are uh, some of the things you remember that we talked about last week? We were here last week, right? Did you say greater and lesser? Is those the terms you use? Greater and lesser? Yeah. Uh, I may have. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I think I talked primarily about weak and strong. Oh, yes, yes. We did talk about essential and non-essential. What's the difference between essential and non-essential things? Okay, okay. Okay, okay, great, yeah. Uh, we have to remember what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about what we call non-essentials, okay? And the non-essentials will be those things about which Christ, uh, Scripture either clearly gives us liberty or an area that Scripture may be silent on or an area in which the church has never really come to a conclusion that the Scriptures are clear on. So it's an area that the Scriptures apparently are ambiguous because Christians and throughout the centuries have never really coalesced around those things. So those would be the non-essential things. The essential things are those things which the Scripture sets down for us are necessary items for Christian fellowship. Okay? And, uh, and they would be in two different categories. Uh, the, there are essentials in the area of doctrine and there are essentials in the area of ethics. 
And similarly, there are non-essentials in the area of doctrine and there are non-essentials in the area of ethics. And uh, so, so there are some doctrines, there are some truths of Scripture that are, uh, uh, they are uh, uh, absolutes that we, that we make conditional for, for Christian fellowship. So someone must, if they're going to be a member of our fellowship, if they're going to be a part of the church and the fellowship of the body of Christ, they must believe in uh, they must believe in the deity of Christ. They must believe in the atonement. They must believe in the resurrection. They must believe in the Trinity, etc. Et These are some of the uh, some of the essentials. There are other areas that are non-essentials theologically, uh, and we could think of a whole host of areas in which Christians uh, believe are areas that are important, but they are not areas that divide us in areas when we fellowship together. So it, it could be in an area, say, of our view of prophecy or our view of spiritual gifts or uh, our view of how the church ought to be structured or our view of what kind of songs we sing in our worship service or uh, how we wear, wear our hair, or how we wear our clothes. Or These are areas which we, when we say they're non-essential, we're not saying they're not important. We're not saying they're not things we shouldn't think about and shouldn't talk about. But they are things that uh, they are things that uh, are not obstacles to our fellowship. Okay, so those are uh, those involve some areas of doctrine. They also involve some areas of Christian conduct, and that particularly is what Paul is dealing with here in chapter 14 and the first part of chapter 15, as he's talking about the question of these areas of what we might call Christian ethics or Christian conduct. And he's talking specifically in areas of non-essentials. So he's not talking here about things about our behavior, our conduct, where Scripture is very clear. Scripture is very clear, for example, on, on certain areas of, of sexual behavior and things like that. That sex is to be preserved for marriage. And when sex is engaged in outside of a marriage, that's a non-starter. That's a, that's a, that's a basis for breaking fellowships. Very clear in 1 Corinthians. Paul makes that very clear. That's something that we would separate over uh, and, and refuse to fellowship with somebody if they insisted on living in adultery or living a homosexual lifestyle or, or something like that. So we're not talking about those essentials that Scripture is clear on. Paul is talking here about what we call non-essentials. Okay? What else? You look like you were going to say something. I just trying to remember. So, uh, well, that does bring up the issue. The, the first issue that Paul addresses is the question of eating meat. And we talked about how uh, he's writing to the Roman church and in the context in Rome, uh, you have the tension that exists between the uh, Gentile believers in Rome and the Jewish believers in Rome and the tendency of the Jewish believers and what we referred to as the God-fearing believers. These would be people who, uh, Gentiles, who had associated and identified with Judaism and then eventually converted to Christ, but they still had a very Jewish flavor uh, to, their, uh, to their faith and to their walk with God. And so the, the issue seems to be, and most commentators uh, not all, but most commentators agree that the, the issue here in Rome is that there are believers, either Jewish believers or some of these God-fearing uh, believers, uh, as if all believers weren't God-fearing, but you understand my distinction there, uh, that, that, that these people were, for one reason or another, and it's not exactly clear, but they were... Uh, they were shooing the eating of meat. They were, they were refraining from the eating of meat very possibly, very probably, because they, they had no way of knowing whether or not that meat had been prepared in a kosher manner. And so because of that, they refused to eat meat. We don't know that for sure, why these people were refusing to eat meat, but there were some who believed that it was wrong for them to eat meat. Uh, this is a different issue than the issue in Corinthians where... It wasn't that somebody felt 
eating meat was wrong, but they thought it was wrong to eat meat that was offered to idols. And that's another issue. That's another question that he deals with in 1 Corinthians. In this case, uh, apparently these people were essentially vegetarians. They just refused to eat any meat at all. And, uh, and, and Paul categorizes those who don't eat meat, those who are refraining from eating meat on a spiritual basis, on some kind of uh, moral uh, claim or basis, he distinguishes them from those who do eat meat, who felt the freedom to eat meat. He classifies them and he calls one group one thing and one group another. What does he call those who don't eat meat? How does he refer to them? Pardon? Weak. Yes, he refers to them as weak. And then later, uh, he will refer to the other group. He hasn't used this term yet, but he'll refer to the other group as strong. Okay, so we have the weak and the strong. Now, when we talked about that last week, what, what does Paul what does Paul mean when he refers to them as being weak? In faith. Okay, there he refers to them as being weak in faith. But even at that, he doesn't he doesn't mean they don't trust God. They don't. And in fact, we're going to look at this much more clearly today, much more thoroughly today. It's, it's not that they're not believing God. It's not that they're not trusting God. It's that they haven't. They don't have a, a fullness, a maturity of their faith that allows them to see the freedom and the liberty that they have in Christ. Okay, so they're saved. They believe God, and, and as we'll see today, hopefully, Paul hopes that that what they're doing and not eating meat, that they are doing it from a full conviction of faith. So it's not that these people are weak in faith in the sense that they they that that they uh, they somehow don't have enough faith. It's just simply that they have not matured in their faith to a point where they understand their freedom in Christ. Okay. Uh, by the same token, then we have the others, and these are strong. And it doesn't doesn't mean that these people have some kind of great faith whereby they can move mountains. That's not Paul's point here. But rather, Paul's point is these people have 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 grown to a maturity in their faith where they understand the freedom and the liberty they have in Christ. So he has these two categories, the weak and the strong. Okay, And, uh, and what is the attitude that these two groups are to have to one another? Okay? To receive each other. And particularly in verse 1 there, he starts out, uh, telling uh, uh, those that are strong, the, the classification of those that are strong, to receive those who are weak. And, the, and as we talked about last week, this probably is a reference to the Jews who are now, after having been expelled from Rome, several years later being allowed to return. So now the Jews are returning in, in, to Rome and the Jewish believers are coming back to Rome and they're wanting to come back to the church and they're wanting to fellowship with the church, but they're coming with this understanding that they cannot eat meat. And Paul says to the to the what is now the dominant part of the church, the dominant influence within the church, which are the Gentiles, and which in this case happen to be in this category of the strong, he's saying you are to receive them. Okay? Yes, they're coming back in and they want a fellowship with you. And they have this thing about meat. Well, you don't exclude them. You don't, he says, you don't look down your noses at him. You don't regard them with contempt. Okay? But you receive them warmly into the fellowship of Christ. And by the same token, he warns the weak not to be judging those that are strong. Those who feel some scruples against eating meat. He says, you don't look at those who who exercise the freedom to eat meat and judge them and condemn them and consider them unworthy in some way because they're eating meat. But we embrace one another when we fellowship. Again, we're talking about what we call the non-essentials. Seems like it's more of a broader category of weak than weak, weak in faith. It's kind of just weak in yeah. understanding or comprehension of what's going on. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a good way to define it. I'm sure that that I think that passage in Corinthians. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I think that helps us understand kind of what Paul has in in mind here. That's a that's a great point. Uh, 
we talked about a little bit last week too about how do how do the weak view themselves when it comes to these things. Okay, they don't view themselves as weak, right? They're they, spiritual people. Yeah, yeah, and they 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 can be very spiritual people, and hopefully they are, as we'll see in the verses we look at today, very spiritual people. But a weak person doesn't think of himself, and a spiritually weak person doesn't think of themselves as weak. Now, a physically weak person, you know, I think, you know, I realize, you know, I can't lift 500 pounds, so I know I'm weak physically. But if I'm, but if I am weak in the way Paul's talking about here being weak, weak as in conscience, like Mike was just pointing out, if, I, if, I, if I'm weak in my conscience, I don't think of myself as being weak because if, I'm, if I see somebody put a nice plate of, you know, of beef stew in front of me and I, and I turn it down, that takes a little bit of strength of character, right? So the person who's weak in faith is not somebody who's weak in character. So, so they don't necessarily think of themselves as weak. What do they think about these areas that we're talking about? Yeah, they tend to think they're more important than they are, okay? So they look at non-essentials and they tend to think this is really something that's essential. And this is where Paul's admonition comes in. You don't judge, okay? You don't judge because this is not this is an area in which scripture has given liberty, all right? So uh so they tend to they tend not to see themselves as weak and they tend to see these areas uh, in which we have liberty, he, they tend to see these non-essentials as more important than they are, and maybe even as being essentials or criteria for fellowship. And that's why Paul takes so much time to address this issue, because it's a cause of division within the church. Yeah, Blake. What's your solution when you find yourself wrestling with something that's a matter of conscience and you kind of figure out am I being told by the devil I am sinning against my conscience because our conscience is a gift, I believe, that can be spared, the Bible says. Yeah, and yeah. kind of a guy, too. Yeah. Or am I just being weak? Well, that's a great segue into these verses that we're going to look at today because that's some of the things that Paul addresses today. So let's just go ahead and, and, and look at those verses. In verse 5, he introduces uh, two more categories. The first two categories were the, the eat-meters and the non-eat-meters, okay? The... Uh, the, the, the strong and the weak. The strong were the ones who felt the liberty to eat meat. The weak were those who didn't. Now in verse 5, he introduces us to two more categories. The person who regards one day above another and another person regards every day alike. Okay? So he introduces us to two more. And again, presumably, although he doesn't say so specifically, presumably here the person who regards one day above another is the weak person and the person who regards all days alike is the strong person. Okay, so uh, so we not only have within the church people who who uh, have scruples about the issues of food, we have people who also have scruples about days. Okay, and what you and whether or not some days are more holy or more sacred or ought to be set aside and regarded as special days. Uh, and and uh, apparently, again, here, we don't know for sure what Paul is dealing with here. Again, just kind of like in the area of meat, we're not exactly sure what the issue was. Again, we're not exactly sure what the issue of days here. Uh, I saw three possibilities mentioned in the various commentator, commentaries that I looked at. Uh, one of them is that it was... Uh, it had to do with Jewish festivals, special days. As you know, the Jews, of course, had a number of special days or special periods of time or special festivals. And those times were set aside and there was certain conduct that was required of them on those days. And so the thought is that some of these Jews uh, returning into Jerusalem uh, were bringing back this, uh, this devotion to these special times of festivals. Another possibility, of course, is simply a referring a reference to the Jewish Sabbath, the, the seventh day uh, of the week uh, uh, and the keeping of the Sabbath and the rules and the and the uh, stipulations that came with the keeping of the Sabbath. There's also the possibility that it doesn't have to do with any of that, but rather has to do with the keeping of pagan holidays of of the, the holidays that the non-Christians and the non-Jews observed. And, of course, there were many of those. And the question is, should you observe those or shouldn't you observe them? And that seems all very remote 
to us. It seems very far off, but it it really isn't. Uh, the church has... Pardon? Go ahead. Yes, we know, because we don't celebrate Halloween, but what we have to be careful about is that we don't think people who celebrate Halloween are pagans. Okay, great. That's a good example. The celebrating of Halloween. The celebrating of Christmas. Now, we might think... Uh, you know, we make a, tend to make here at Trinity, we make a big thing out of Christmas and we celebrate it a lot. But that's been a very divisive issue in the history of the church uh, as recently as a couple hundred years ago. And it's even today among some is they believe that it's wrong to celebrate Christmas. It's a sin to celebrate Christmas um, because of what, they, what is believed to be the pagan associations with it. Uh, some have the same feeling about Easter and the celebration of Easter because it's associated with, uh, uh, in some ways with uh, pagan uh, holiday, etc. So, so these are not issues that are really all that foreign to us. There are Christians today who hold very strongly that our day of worship must be Saturday and not Sunday. There are Christians who feel very strongly that our worship day must be Sunday and you're wrong if you go shopping at Walmart on Sunday. You have broken the Sabbath. Okay? So there, so these are issues that we struggle with in the church even today. Okay? So the question is, you know, how important is Sunday? Is Sunday a sacred day? Is it a holy day? Uh, or should it be Saturday? But if it's Saturday or if it's Sunday, how holy is it? You know, what are you what what is it permissible for you to do on a Sunday and what's not permissible for you to do on a Sunday or Saturday as the case may be. So these are issues that Christians struggle with today, okay? So so we have these classification then in addition to the eaters and the non-eaters in reference to meat, we have the question of those who regard one day above another and those who don't. And it's it's and with those who don't, it's not as if Paul is saying they, they don't regard the days as sacred. It's that, that those that are in the, what we might call the strong category, instead of, instead of elevating one day above another, they elevate all the days. They believe all days are holy to God. They believe all days are sacred and devoted. So there's not one day that we set aside as special, but every day. The idea is that we give... Every day to God and every day is special in some sense uh, devoted to God. Okay, so these are the two groups uh, that that Paul is addressing. But but I want to point out as we go forward in these verses, we we need to recognize that Paul is Paul is making an assumption here and the assumption is based upon his next statement. Okay, and the assumption uh, is that when these people do what they do or don't do what they do, that they are walking in fellowship with God. That they are walking in faith. That's an assumption here. Okay. So some of the things he says don't really apply unless someone is operating out of a deep conviction. So this goes to the question that Blake raised a few minutes ago. Okay, You'll notice at the end there of verse 5, he says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay, So, so Paul's saying, okay, we've got these over here and they're not, they're not observing special days. And we've got these people and, and, and they do and they think these, these days, whether it's the Sabbath day or the festival days, or whether, they think these days are really special and they're really holy and they're, they're set aside and we need to observe them in this particular way. Okay, we have these two groups and Paul says, just be fully convinced in your mind. So it's really not so much of an issue to Paul which one of these two you're doing. What's really important to him is that you be fully convinced in your own mind. Our question comes up, what does he mean by that? And how do I know when I'm there? Okay, so those are some questions we need to ask ourselves. But 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 the things that Paul is going to say in the verses that follow, the things about everybody living for the Lord and everybody dying for the Lord and and uh, and and giving thanks and all these things that he's going to say are predicated on the assumption that you are acting out of a deep seated conviction. Okay. 
If you are not operating out of a deep-seated conviction, then some of these things don't work. All right. So this is Paul's assumption that I'm that I'm operating out of a deep-seated conviction. And this is an imperative here. Whatever I do, whether I keep the Sabbath day or I don't keep the Sabbath day, whether I regard one day above another or I regard all days alike, whatever I do, I must do from a deep seated conviction. Okay. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, let's cheat and let's look down to the end of the chapter. In the end of chapter 14, I think he gives us a clue. And of course, we'll deal with these verses more in depth when we get to them. Uh, But notice in verse 22, Well, let's start in verse 21. He said, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, like I said, we'll explore those verses in considerable depth when we get to them, of course. But I think that gives us an understanding of what Paul's talking about when he's talking about having a full conviction. He's talking about operating with a full faith in God. So when I, when I read that and I go, full conviction, everybody be fully convinced in his own mind. What I what I tend to think is I tend to think, okay, I reached some kind of rational, you know, some kind of logical conclusion so that I'm absolutely bedrock convinced this is the truth. Okay. But in reality, what Paul has in mind is that there are some issues in which I can't absolutely nail things down. And so I have to walk by faith. Okay. So, for example, there's a lot of evidence that I embrace uh, that convinces me that God exists. <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately, I cannot prove that God exists. Ultimately, I have to walk by faith and believe that God exists. Okay. So when it comes to these areas of non-essentials or these areas of liberty or these areas of question on which Christians disagree, I may not be able to absolutely fully prove my point to another person. But what I need to be able to do is I need to be able to operate fully from faith in my own life. So if there is a question about days, the question that I have to ask myself is whatever stand I take on that, can I do it fully in faith? And Paul says, if I'm not doing it fully in faith, there at the end of the chapter, he says, that is sin. Anything that I'm not doing in faith is sin. Well, so I was wrestling with this and I'm thinking, well, how do I know? How do I how do I know if I really have faith about this thing? (laughs) Or, or, you know, how do I know I'm not just kind of making this thing up and, you know, how do I know I really have faith? So I'm so I'm I'm faced with an opportunity to do something, whether it's eat meat or regard a day or any number of the things that we listed last week. And I gave you about 20 different things I've seen Christians divide over everything from how they wear their hair to to, uh, you know, what kind of cars they drive and that sort of thing. And. And the question is, as I face my decisions in this regard, how do I know whether I'm acting in faith? Now, I don't think this is a I don't think this is an infallible test, but I think it's a pretty good test. And it's the test that Paul uses here is, can I give thanks? Can I give thanks in this? This thing that I'm about to participate in or this thing that I'm about to do. Can I do it in faith? Well, can I, can I do it in thanksgiving? Can I thank God for it? If I can't, with a clear conscience, thank God for, about, for what I'm about to do or not to do, if I can't thank God for it, then it's a pretty good sign 
I'm not really convinced this is pleasing to the Lord. Okay? So I, so I think uh, this goes to some degree to the question you were asking, Blake, is how do I know? How do I, how am I, how, how, how do I know if I am fully convinced, if I'm really fully walking in faith in this area? Well, one of the questions that I ask myself or should ask myself or can ask myself is, can I thank God for this? So somebody sets a nice pot roast in front of me and I'm not sure, you know, can I eat that pot roast in thanks? Or do I hesitate to thank God for it? Well, if I hesitate to thank God for it, then I probably don't have the faith to eat it. And I probably shouldn't eat it. Okay? So, so this issue of being fully convinced is important to Paul. Because everything he's going to say from this point on is contingent on the assumption that when you're acting, you're acting with a full conviction. You're acting fully persuaded in your own heart. Your heart is full of faith on this issue. And you are stepping forth as unto the Lord. Okay? And everything else that he says here is predicated on that assumption. That's why I like the translation here. It is an imperative in the Greek. Uh, and, and, and I like the way it's translated here in the New American where he says, uh, uh, the way he says it here, he says, each person must be fully persuaded. This is, this is an essential in this area of liberties uh, <clears throat> and scruples. So, so each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Then he says, in verse 6, he says, he who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And, uh, and then he says, he who eats, he does so for the Lord. And he who, uh, because he gives thanks, or for he gives thanks to the God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. So, so in verse uh, there at the beginning of the verse where he says, he who observes the day, he says, he observes it for the Lord. Now, he's not observing it out of faith. He's not observing it for the Lord. Okay. He's not, he's not doing this for God unless he's doing it for faith because we know from verse 23 that whatever is not of faith is sin. All right. So, so that's why I say everything that flows after verse 5 flows on the presumption that the person is operating from a full conviction. But the person who observes the day... Now, remember, the person who is observing the day is the weak person. He thinks this is required. He thinks he needs to do this. Okay? So he's the weak person. Then he's going to talk about the person who eats meat, and that's the strong person. And then he talks about the person who doesn't eat meat, and that's going back again to the weak person. But the, but the, but the weak person... The person who is weak in faith or weak in conscience feels he needs to observe this day and so he observes it. He does it for the Lord. And Paul's implication is God's pleased with that. And you go, well, how can that be? How can it be if if I'm doing something that God doesn't require and I think He does and I'm doing it because I think He requires it, how could it be that God is pleased with that? Well, most of us have experienced this because we're parents. Right? And we have children who have brought to us their little efforts to please us. You know? It's a piece of paper with just a bunch of crayon scribbles on it. Right? And they bring it to us and they give it to us. And it really is piece of junk. Isn't it? I mean, it really... Now, see? Ginger's going, no! Because she's got the heart of God on this matter, okay? But you look at it, it's, you know, I mean, I... You know, if you're walking through the sanctuary and after church and there's been children in the sanctuary, you'll find these little pieces of paper lying around in the sanctuary. And what do we do with them? We pick them up, crumb them up, and throw them in the trash, right? Unless you're the parent. Right? And then you take it home and you stick it on the refrigerator door. And it's still there when the kid is 16 years old. And brings his girlfriend home, right? <laughs> and you go, oh, that's what Johnny drew for me. <laughs> okay. okay. So my point is, my point is, 
That's God's heart towards us. It doesn't just apply with children. I think it applies with adults. When, when my wife and I were first thinking about getting married, which didn't take us very long, uh, but when we were first thinking about getting married, uh, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about how, we were, how we're fallible, how we, we often make mistakes with one another, and we often, we often do misguided things for our spouses. Uh, I know none of you guys have ever done that, right? But, but uh, I've got a track record in this, okay? Uh, so, so one of the things that, that my wife and I talked about before we were married is that is that there just needed to always be a presumption of love. In other words, I just, I just need to always believe Mary loves me. Even though at times she may do an occasional misguided thing. Okay. Uh, these misguided things, they tend to show up in Christmas wrapping, right? <laughs> they tend to show up in Christmas wrapping, you know? And, you know, I've given my wife some things over the years that have never been seen since the day they were opened. <laughs> I, I can think of one thing in particular right now. And if my wife asks you about this, she's not going to know what I'm talking about. Cause, and I'm not going to tell her. But there's one thing that I gave her one time. It wasn't an incident. It wasn't at Christmas. But there's one thing I gave her one time. And I never saw it again. Okay. And it was full of meaning to me. You know, I, you know, I gave it a lot of thought. I didn't talk to some other guys about it. Yeah, you ought to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that was my mistake. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'm sure my wife does not remember it to this day. You know, I've never seen it since. Okay. Does that mean it? Does it mean I didn't? <laughs> yeah. Now it's in his acting cleaner. Uh, no. But, but you know, and to be honest, to be fair here, you know, my wife has given me an item or two, you know, and you all have been in this position. My wife has given me an item or two, and and I open it and I smile and I say thank you, and I'm thinking. I have no use for this, you know. Okay. Does that mean she doesn't love me? No. You know, it's that old cliche. It's the thought that counts. And that's true with God. So if I have, if I have some scruples that really are not an issue to God, if I don't eat meat, and, and I think it's a big thing to God, and I think I'm making a really big sacrifice for Him, but it's really not an issue to Him. Do you think He does not take that as a gesture of love when I pass that plate of roast by? No. He takes it as a sign of my love. Even though it's not an issue to Him. Right? So the person He says, uh, the person He says who regards the day he does it for the Lord. And the Lord's pleased with it. It's not an issue to God. It would have been okay if the person had not regarded the day or kept the day or made it special. God would have still been pleased with him. But God receives their offering of, his, of love to him as a gesture and an expression of that love. He cares about that. Yeah. This came up many years ago. Did you get worried? <laughs> we touched on a sensitive nerve here. <laughs> uh, so this happened many years ago. I was a youth director. I remember some of the kids were getting their wings and going to some you know, places like bars or things like that. And, you know, I, I remember talking to them on this passage. That, Can you do that? My view is, if you live for the Lord, you, whatever you're doing is honoring God. Mm-hmm. It's honoring to God. And I, I said, you know, there are probably situations when Jesus went into some unscrupulous places, which might be like a bar, but he didn't go in there to indulge in what they indulged. Everywhere Jesus went, he raised the level of wherever he went. Good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go in there and you sink down to the level where you're there, you're in sin. You're not honoring God. If you go in there to raise the level, which be hard in like, you know, some places that's the only place you can go and yeah. you can go eat there and you can do it righteously and you can even witness to other people that might yeah. be raising the level. Yeah. 
kind of you're just participating, you're not honoring God. You're, yeah. you're, you're indulging yourself. Yeah, yeah. Good, great point. Well, so then he says, uh, so he's talking about the weak who regard one day and they do it for the Lord. And then he says, now we have those who, who uh, eat meat uh, and, uh, and they, when they do it, he says they do it to the Lord. How do we know they do it to the Lord? They give thanks. Before the meal, they stop and they give thanks. And so they're recognizing that the meat that's been set before them is provided to them by God. And they are worshiping Him and expressing to Him their gratitude for this meat that God has provided for them. Now that's the strong person. But the weak person, he eschews the meat. He, he passes on the meat. And he goes, no, I'm not going to eat meat. And he does that for the Lord. How do we know he does that for the Lord? He gives thanks. <laughs> we oftentimes think about giving thanks for our meal. How often do we give thanks, thanks for our not meal? <laughs> okay, here we have the wheat who are giving thanks for their not meal. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean simply that their attitude about not eating is not, I don't get to eat the meat. No. Or even, I'm better than you because <laughs> yeah. I don't eat Right. Their attitude is, thank you, God, that I can pass this meat by for you. And so their abstinence from meat is an expression of worship to God as they express their gratitude for Him that they can make this sacrifice for Him and to please Him and to honor Him. Again, it's a little bit misdirected. <laughs> okay? Like some of those things I've given my wife over the years. Okay? It's a little bit misdirected. But God understands that. God understands that. And so he, so he receives it because it's, it's given to him. It's done for him. And so he says, uh, he says, for not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. Okay. Now again, you have to remember, Paul's operating on a presupposition here that we're walking by faith. There are a lot of people who live for themselves. And there are a lot of people who die for themselves. And there are some Christians who live for themselves. And there are some Christians who die for themselves. There's a verse that strikes me. I, uh, I was first made aware of this verse many, many years ago. I've been talking about Okinawa a lot lately. Uh, but this verse was brought to my attention when I was on Okinawa. And I have uh, never forgotten it. Uh, I really needed to hear the verse at the time that it was spoken to me, and it's made an impression on me, and I've always remembered it. But in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter five, uh, Paul is speaking here, and he's he's uh, talking about his ministry. In verse fourteen, he says, "For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live." Might what? Remember the verse? He died for all so that they who live might what? No longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's a, that's a, that's a verse of admonition. So in other words, it's possible for me as a Christian to live for myself. Even as it's possible for an unbeliever to live for themselves. But Christ died for me so that I wouldn't live for myself. Christ died for me so that I would live for Him. Okay? So when Paul here in Romans says uh, in verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself or not one of us dies for himself, he's, 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 he's speaking to those who are operating out of a full conviction, who are living as unto the Lord 
who are walking in faith in whatever it is they do, whether they observe the day or they don't observe the day, whether they eat the meat or they don't eat the meat. They're doing it from a full, deep seated conviction, from full faith, from full con- uh, from a from a from a strong conscience. They are doing what they are doing and they are giving thanks for it and they are honoring God. And he says, for those who are doing that, he says, not one of them lives for himself and not one of them dies for himself. For if we live, he says, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. What what is he getting to here? The believer, the Christian, who walks in a fullness of conviction, who everything he does, he is able, because of the full conviction of faith, to give thanks to God. He's able to worship God in it and honor God in it. This person, he says, is living for the Lord. And when he gets to the end of his life, and as he's, as, he's, as he's at the threshold of death and as he's contemplating death, even at that point, he's doing it for the Lord. He's, he's, entering, he's entering into the river of death in faith. He is doing it unto the Lord, whether he lives or whether he dies. And as Paul said in Second Corinthians, the verse we just read, so he says here in, uh, in verse Uh, Nine, he says, for to this end, Christ died and lived again. This is why Christ died and lived again. In order that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. Now, ultimately, of course, he will be. As we know from Philippians chapter 2, he will be the Lord of the dead and the living. Ultimately, all people will eventually bow down and acknowledge him as Lord. We know ultimately that that's going to happen. But right now, just Paul's just dealing with us believers. He's dealing with the people who have, who have uh, thrown in their lot with Christ. He's dealing with those people who have said, I want Christ to be the Lord of my life now. Okay. And he says, it's for this purpose Christ died. He died, as he said there in Corinthians, in order that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And so Christ died. Now, when Paul says here that he that Christ died and lived again in order that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living, uh, he's uh, how, how do I explain this? He's. He's not saying he died so he could be Lord of the dead and he lived so he could be Lord of the living. So it's not a, it's not a respective thing, okay? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that Christ in his death and his resurrection, he did that, that total act of his death and his resurrection. He did it in order that he might categorically be the Lord over all. That's... That's the point that Paul makes in Philippians 2. That Christ went through that, those seven steps down that he talks about there in Philippians 2 in order that God might exalt him and he might be Lord of all. Okay? So, in his, in his sacrificial death and in his resurrection, he has now been exalted to the Lord over all. Okay? And what Paul is trying to stress here is Paul is going to make an argument here from the greater to the lesser. If you can establish the greater, then the lesser is also true. Okay, so it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. And so what Paul is saying here is Christ is the Lord of all. And this little circle circle here will represent all. Okay, he's the Lord of all. And within this Lord of all, we have two categories. Everybody fits into one or other of these two categories. What are they? Uh, Well, no. Dead or the living. Yeah, okay. Going on the verses that we're in right now, okay? So we got the dead and we got the living. 
Everybody fits into one of those two categories, right? Everybody's either dead or alive, okay? And Christ is the Lord over all of that, right? Now, if Christ is the Lord over all of that, we have some other categories. But they're just little categories. You see, there are some people here among the living who eat and some who don't eat. Okay? So we got a, we got a little subcategory there. We got those who eat, we got those who don't eat. Is Christ Lord over them? Is Christ Lord over those who don't eat, but He's not Lord over those who eat? What's your answer? He's Lord of all. This, this category fits within the larger category. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Christ is Lord over all, if He's Lord over the dead and the living, certainly He's Lord over those who eat and those who don't eat. So if I'm one of those who don't eat, I can't sit here and say, well, Christ is not Lord in the life of the person who eats. No, He is. Because He's Lord over all. And if I am one of those who who regards all days alike, I'm no place to look at the person who thinks that they need to keep the Sabbath and say, well, that person's obviously not under the Lordship of Christ. They are under the Lordship of Christ because they fit into this big category of all. So Christ is the Lord of all. And if Christ is the Lord of all, then Christ is the Lord over my brother or my sister who has different scruples than I have. Who feels free to worship in a different way than I feel free to worship. Or who regards one day different than I regard. Or who wears clothing different than I think they should wear to church. You know, I wear a suit to church, but they only wear blue jeans. And so they're really not honoring the Lord. Or vice versa. This kind of reminds me, it came to mind, my dad, we used to plow in the summertime. We'd plow all the time to get it plowed. And I would plow all day. He'd come home from work and come out there and relieve me. And there was a time when he would come out and occasionally he would bring some beers and cheese and crackers and stuff. And, you know, nobody sees him. He's out in the middle of the field on the tractor. And, you know, and which you know, could be fine, but. He got to tell him later, he said, you know, I just couldn't do it. And it's kind of like an issue. He couldn't give thanks. Couldn't give thanks. You know, it was nobody but him and yeah. God. Yeah. He couldn't give thanks. And it's also, I think if you take a step further, if you can give thanks, it's like you're inviting Jesus to share what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. sure. Because you can give thanks. Yeah. And he couldn't do that. Now, yeah. Some people probably could yeah. in some cultures. Yeah. But he couldn't do yeah. that. Yeah. And he quit after a while. I mean, yeah. we talked about it. You know, he just <coughs> quit doing that. Yeah. And it's just, it, and it is just an issue of what can I do and give thanks? What can I do with a full conviction? And, and, uh, and so, so Paul says, okay, if this is true, and, and we know this is true because he says, because he says, God said, he says this, he, he says, uh, in, uh, verse 11, he says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall give praise to God. So, so we know that all those who eat and all those who don't eat are going to give praise to God. They're going to give thanks to God if they're operating, as we say, out of a full conviction. And so, what is Paul's admonition to us? Well, it's the same thing he told us back in verse 4. He tells us now again in verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So so the weak, he says, why do you judge your brother? And to the strong, he says, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Because that person, that individual, is going to stand before God. They're going to stand before Christ. 
in verse 12, he says, they're going to give an account of themselves to God. So, my brother or my sister who exercises a liberty in some area, I'm in no place to have a censorious attitude to them, to censor them, to judge them. I'm in no place to do that because they don't answer to me. They're going to give an account to God. And as he said earlier, before their own master their stand will fall and stand they will for God is able to make them stand. And so if, if I have scruples in an area and I don't think I should do this and I look at my brother or my sister in Christ and they do it and they, they have that freedom and they have that and they exercise that freedom, then, then it is wrong for me to pass judgment on them. Because they're answering to God and they're giving thanks to God for what they do. And by the same token, if I have a freedom and if I have a liberty to do something, and I see my brother, my sister, and they have scruples in that area, and they think, mm, can't do that. That would not be honoring to the Lord. If I look down on all these poor people, they, they, just, they just never grew up in the faith. They just never grew up. You know, if they just grow up, they would realize they don't have to be hung up on those things. And I have sinned against their Lord. Question. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Are you going to give cover the Sabbath? Because as far as the other days, uh, I understand there are feast days, new moons, all that kind of stuff. But the Sabbath is in the Ten Commandments. And I doubt any of us would say that any of the other nine commandments, you know, you're talking about essentials, I think mm-hmm. we all agree the other nine are essentials. Mm-hmm. Then why not the Sabbath? Well, let's just take a minute and address it and I'll stick my neck out. Okay. I will say this. I think this is a non-essential. I have convictions about it, but I believe it's a non-essential. I think that when the church in the first century began to worship on Sunday rather than Saturday, they made their statement. It doesn't apply. Uh, so, uh, uh, my, uh, my conviction is that that aspect of the Ten Commandments is not binding on us today. And the principle that I operate on personally is that, that I believe that everything that is commanded in the Old Testament which is also commanded in the New Testament, is binding on us. But those things which are commanded in the Old Testament, which are not commanded in the New Testament, that we don't have a clear indication in the New Testament of binding on us, I believe are not binding on us. Okay. And so while it is true that all the other nine commandments of the Decalogue are repeated in some way or some form in the New Testament, that one is not. And so my personal opinion is that it's not binding on us. And I, and I think, uh, I think uh, one of the reasons why that is a necessary position to take is because as soon, as soon as we hit the first century and the church begins to spread all over the world, then you begin to see all kinds of people converted to Christ who don't have an option about keeping the Sabbath. They're slaves. And they're not slaves in Israel. They're slaves in Rome or they're slaves in other places. And the church was made up, a large percentage of the church was made up with slaves who have no option to say, I'm not going to work on the Sabbath day. And I think that's why God liberated us from the Sabbath. One of the reasons why, because the gospel would have been, would have been seriously impeded if we had said to people all over the world and all kinds of cultures, you have to observe this day, you cannot work, etc., etc., etc. So, my conviction is, is no, it's not. Now, personally, I do see the principle, and I think the principle is repeated in the New Testament, that we need to rest. <laughs> that we are, not, we are not geared to work nonstop. You know, it's the principle of the rest. 
And, and I think the principle of the rest is repeated in the New Testament. So I do think that we as believers need to take time to rest. The question is, when are you going to do it? Now, I choose to do it on Sunday. I do it on Sunday because this is the day that the church historically has said we're going to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. We're going to worship on Sunday. And so I set Sunday aside to meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ, to worship with them. Uh, and also, uh, I try to minimize how much work I do. Do I go to Walmart on Sunday? Yeah, I go to Walmart every day. Sometimes two or three times a day. Okay. <laughs> do I go to Walmart on Sunday? Yes. Uh, but, uh, but, I don't, uh, but, I, but I try to minimize what I do on Sunday because I believe in the value of the idea of the rest. Uh, so, uh, so that's my own position. Uh, but, but I know there are Christians who feel very strongly about, boy, you don't, you don't go shopping because if you're going shopping, you're making somebody else work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you don't go shopping. Uh, you, don't, uh, uh, you, you try not to cook any food or whatever on Sunday or, or Saturday or whichever the case may be. And here again, would I fellowship with those people? Of course. Yeah. Uh, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. When I was in the Army... Uh, I was in. Uh, I was assigned to the medical corps. I was a medic, and uh, and uh, of course I grew up in a church where we, you know, we set Sunday aside and we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I used to feel more strongly about the Sabbath, Sunday being the Sabbath, than I do now at that time. But uh, but uh, so I was I was a medic, and so I was in medical training with a bunch of other medics. And, uh, of course, uh, a lot of conscientious objectors become medics. And it just so happens that there are a lot of conscientious objectors from the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. Okay? And uh, so I had opportunity to rub shoulders with a lot of Seventh-day Adventist conscientious objectors when I was in the Army. These, are, these were men who believed that it was important that you keep Saturday as the Sabbath. And they were very strict about that, you know. We had great fellowship. They love God. <laughs> and I love God. Uh, and, uh, and so we had wonderful fellowship together. In the Army, you, you know, sometimes a little hard to find good fellowship, you know. And I'll take it wherever I could get it. And I had some good fellowship with some of these brothers and, well, there weren't any sisters at that time, but brothers in Christ who, uh, who came from that particular communion or that particular persuasion. Uh, so that's, that's how I feel about it. Do you have some thoughts? Figure out, figure that's what you're saying. <laughs> I pretty much agree. I know one of the biggest things that we wrestled with was in farming. You know, I, I kind of agree with you. It's a day of rest, and I don't do my work work on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I may do work that's recreational work, like gardening and lawn, mm-hmm, but I don't do my work work, money making work. Mm-hmm. In farming, we wouldn't either. I mean, we'd feed the cows, they'd be fed water, but we okay. wouldn't go work in the field. But when it was time for wheat harvest, you've got to get your wheat crop in <laughs> yeah. before it hails or rain. Yeah, yeah. And the issue is do you do it on Sunday or do you have your entire crew go out there on Sunday? <laughs> uh, some will do it and some wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, my dad yeah. got where he would not do that. Yeah. He yeah. said, let her sit there. Yeah. And, and I always thought that was a testimony to. And it is, even though, I, yeah, and it, there again, yeah. Blame the ones that. She prayed for yeah. her hell. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was a deal. I've talked to other farmers and said, that's God's wheat crop. I've got to go get it. That kind of rain thin. Sounds a little out of it. Yeah. 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 But I think that's a great example. I mean, here's a guy who's got scruples in this area, and I might. You know, I might be one of those guys who get out there and get the crop in, but I look at that guy and I go, he's doing it to the Lord. Is God pleased with that? Of course God's pleased with it. You know, is God pleased with me when I take the freedom to go out there and get the wheat in? You know, of course he is if I'm doing it in faith. Robert, you had a point or a question? Yeah, I had three things to say about the Sabbath. Uh, The first is that the Sabbath were dated from a date calendar, namely the 15th of the new year, and not a day of the week, which means in a seven-year cycle, the Sabbath would start as a day, a different day of the week, which means that the Sabbath was never Saturday. 
And it was every Sunday. It was a different day of the week, starting from the 15th of December. That's one. The second one is uh, that it seems to me that the Sabbath and indeed the whole calendar is tied in intimately with not just the land, but also the sacrificial schedule. Mm-hmm. Thus, since the destruction of the temple, since the sacrifice of Jesus, in order to use the same calendar would be to try to create another sacrifice. It would be having a, be revisiting the mm-hmm. Judaizing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Paul mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is that uh, I realize this one is will probably be disagreed with by a lot of people, but you could say that also since the resurrection we are now in the millennial age, a perpetual mm-hmm. seventh millennium, mm-hmm. in which now we have a perpetual rest, and we could say that this is the Sabbath, and all yeah. of our work now is redeemed, and the land is redeemed, and the animals are redeemed, so we can eat them, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Yeah, good points, good thoughts, good thoughts. Yeah, Sarah? I'm, I'm, I attended Lomeland University for six years, uh-huh. for undergraduate and graduate. And so for six years I lived in a Seventh Avenue environment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And very interestingly, um, and it's tied into what he said. Yeah. Um, in Seventh Avenue theology, they actually have a vision from Ellen White that does talk about an additional sacrifice made by Christ in the tabernacle in heaven. So I think that ties in that they, they observe the Sabbath so strictly, but they haven't been able to let go mm-hmm. of the sacrificial mm-hmm. doctrine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they they had to work it around mm-hmm. so that it, it happens in heaven, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's really nice. Yeah. 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 So that's one reason I could never yeah. become Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. But I also enjoyed yeah. Yeah. fellowship with them. Great point. I did find it very difficult to say thank you, God, for this tofu. <laughs> 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 A little too much. <laughs> yeah, I, there are some things I'm not sure I could thank God for, too. So the question then is, you know, what is the, what's the application of this? Well, one thing I would say, we're not done. Okay, Paul's got more to say on this subject. So we've, just, we've not gotten a balanced view yet of this area. So there's more to say in this area. But given what we do know so far, we know these three things. We have to stop judging others who are enjoying their freedom in Christ. We have to stop regarding with contempt those who are holding to scruples for the Lord. And we are to receive one another with the mind and the grace of Christ. That much we do know so far. Okay? Next week we'll go on. I am. I'm going to come out and teach the lesson there and fish with you. No, I don't fish, so... Yeah. <laughs>